this kind of class of disease that really impacts women disproportionately and yet there's not a lot of public awareness, there's not a lot of awareness in the medical system. So this is this tendency for healthcare providers to dismiss or minimize or normalize and especially to psychologize women's complaints, their symptoms. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. When author Maya Dusenberry started to experience pain after a viral infection, she was introduced to a medical system that mostly marginalizes women and dismisses diseases that predominantly affect women. This, of course, will come as no surprise to any female that has a disease the medical system does not readily recognize. If that disease doesn't have a biomarker yet, doctors will often attribute women's physical symptoms as psychological in origin. This is known as medical gaslighting, and its origins can be traced back to the cocaine-fueled thinking of Sigmund Freud and beyond. In spite of medicine and research claiming to be self-correcting institutions, Maya lays out the problems embedded in research, diagnosis, and treatment, and identifies two cracks, or what Maya calls gaps, in the healthcare system. A knowledge gap, and a trust gap, and the feedback loop that sustains them. In this interview, we unpack Maya's experience with the healthcare system and why it prompted her to take a deep dive into exposing the systemic gaps in women's access to appropriate research data and treatment protocols. And if you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need support for your own experience with medical error and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with author Maya Dusenberry, and a word of warning as always that some folks may be triggered by Maya's experiences with the healthcare system. Awesome. Thanks, Maya. 
So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. I had a happy childhood, um, daughter of two academics, had a younger sister, played soccer, was a very active and healthy uh, young person and had not much need for the medical system growing up. Okay. And so we're here to talk about how your life intersected with the healthcare system. <laughs> so take us on that journey. When did that start? Sure. So I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis when I was uh, 27. And as I said, I had been very healthy up until that point, And so had really only interacted with the medical system for routine reproductive health care. But I did have an interest in women's health. I was a feminist writer and had written about reproductive health issues. But it really wasn't until I was diagnosed with RA that I started um, thinking kind of about how gender bias affects medicine more broadly than reproductive health concerns. And that was definitely inspired by just my kind of personal experience, realizing that I just hadn't really given much thought to whether the medical system was really well equipped to care for me if I were actually sick. It was not something that I had much reason to think about um, until I was experiencing those symptoms. And I was diagnosed pretty quickly and had a pretty straightforward path to diagnosis myself. But despite that, I, I got interested in hearing other people's stories of um, long diagnostic delays in autoimmune diseases. Oh, so for folks who aren't familiar with rheumatoid arthritis, like myself, mm -hmm. uh, what is it? What are the symptoms? And how was that path to diagnosis for you? It sounds like it was pretty easy, but for other folks, not so much. Yeah. So rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune disease where your immune system starts to attack the lining of your joints. So causing inflammation and pain in really any joint in the body. Um, I had a very, I think, pretty kind of classic onset where I started to have pain in my hands first, uh, in the knuckles of my fingers, and then that gradually spread to uh, my toes and ankles and then knees and elbows and eventually shoulders as well. And it started pretty quickly after I had I, what I assume was the flu. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, I sort of woke up with joint pain. Oh, so wait a minute. So arthritis can or is always triggered by a viral infection? Um, I think not always, but I think that that is fairly common, um, that that can sort of act as a trigger that, you know, your immune system was activated to fight some infection and then sort of never gets turned off or gets misdirected. Um, and I think in some cases, inflammatory arthritis can just be a temporary thing. So a sort of reactive arthritis to an infection. And so in the first few months, I was hoping that that's what it was. Um, and so when I first went to my primary care doctor, which was only a few weeks after the symptoms began, their first thought was, you know, we'll wait and see, maybe this will go away in a couple months if it doesn't um, come back and we'll redo, redo the blood work to see if there are the blood markers that indicate it's rheumatoid arthritis as opposed to something more temporary. Okay, so there are blood markers that identify rheumatoid arthritis. So that's a 
the saving grace in terms of getting a diagnosis and not exactly. being psychologized. <laughs> exactly. And so in, in that first interaction with my primary care doctor, since it was so early, I didn't have those blood markers and I didn't actually have any sort of evidence of inflammation in my blood, even though it, there was clearly inflammation, there was pain and some swelling. But then when I finally saw a rheumatologist, which was about six months in, at that point, I had you know high inflammatory markers as well as the two lab results that are fairly specific to rheumatoid arthritis. And so it was, yes, as I said, it was very, I think, easy to get a diagnosis in part because there were those objective signs that were very hard to dismiss. And so it sounds like your quality of life over those six months continued to deteriorate? It did, yeah. It kind of, it was a gradual but very steady kind of progression. The pain sort of spread throughout my body and also started, when it started, it was sort of pain that would last for the first half hour to an hour in the morning, but then subside. And then as it went on, it started to last all day. And so, yeah, by the time I was diagnosed, it was really almost every joint in my body. And yeah, it was clearly <laughs> not a fun way to live. <laughs> yeah, so it must, been, it must have been impacting a lot of different aspects of your life, including your ability to work. Yeah, well, I was, I had recently started um, freelancing. So in some ways, it was kind of good timing. I was able to sort of cut back on work. I went and um, spent some time in the summer at my parents' cabin and sort of um, was really, you know, very fortunate and privileged to be able to kind of take a few months to um, really just focus on getting my health back and reduce stress. Yeah, not, not work too hard. <laughs> Yeah, that was certainly, I think, a big, big reason why I actually was able to get into remission pretty quickly after I was diagnosed. Um, within several months, my symptoms were in remission. Oh, uh, so that's a great thing. How did you get into remission? Yeah, well, um, I think, you know, it's hard to say. I, I start, Once I was diagnosed, I was put on the sort of pretty standard kind of first line pharmaceutical treatment. And then in conjunction, I did some sort of more holistic kind of dietary changes, a kind of anti-inflammatory diet um, to support that. So the combination, uh, I guess, uh, was pretty effective. And yeah, the, the symptoms subsided and as well as actually the inflammatory markers and RA um, diagnostic tests were reversed, which was yeah, a very, very good results. And I think in part, I was able to be put into remission um, because I was diagnosed fairly quickly. And there's evidence, you know, once I started learning about autoimmune diseases and RA specifically, and kind of getting interested in other people's experiences with getting diagnosed and people who didn't have such an easy time, you know, there's actually a lot of evidence that if you're diagnosed and start treatment within six months, but even ideally within three months, the odds of achieving remission are much greater. Apart from just the stress of having a long diagnostic delay, there are really concrete um, differences in outcome um, that that can create. So. so I've maintained through my own experiences with the healthcare system that there's sort of two healthcare systems. There's the one part that works really well if you have something identifiable and they're used to treating it and it's pretty common, like a broken leg, they're probably not going to harm you or kill you. 
But if you have something that's complex that they don't understand that's medically marginalized, you have a totally different experience of the healthcare system. And it sounds like you've, with your RA, had the former experience, pretty quick diagnosis, got good treatment, now you're in remission, got your quality of life back, yet you wrote a whole book about the healthcare system and what's not so good about it. How did your good experience turn into writing about the not so good stuff about our healthcare systems? Yeah, good question. Um, well, I think it's interesting. I think autoimmune diseases like RA are kind of in the, sort of in between those two categories. You know, they're not so marginalized and mysterious as something like fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, where there aren't objective biomarkers yet and, and not a good understanding of how to treat them or identify them. But they're, I think, a little bit more sort of in that gray area than something like a broken leg where, you know, I did have these lab results that were very, you know, fairly specific to RA. But there are a lot of autoimmune diseases that um, are harder to diagnose in that way. You know, they're, you know, RA is a pretty common autoimmune disease. There are less common ones where, you know, you might encounter a healthcare provider who just doesn't know what to test for. And if you're not testing for the specific autoantibodies that would point to the right autoimmune disease, you're gonna be in that kind of same position where you're reporting something like pain or fatigue um, and not having objective signs to confirm that um, or point to a correct diagnosis. And so I think to answer your question, the way I got interested in, in this topic is that I started hearing these stories from auto, other autoimmune patients who experienced long diagnostic delays for months or even years. And again, in part, I think that's a, a lack of training about how to diagnose them, you know, what to test for. It's also, I think, the result of the fact that a lot of people tend to develop multiple autoimmune diseases. So then you kind of have this more complex diagnostic picture where you know, we also have this, this tendency for doctors to assume that there's just one thing going on with you. And so you, if you have multiple things, you know, that are causing different symptoms, that's creating this picture that is a lot harder to diagnose. And as I said, you know, it's the symptoms of autoimmune diseases are things like pain and fatigue that are these very subjective symptoms that are so easy to dismiss if they're not pretty quickly kind of attributed to a real objective cause. So, so it sounds like once you started down this rabbit hole of unpacking uh, the not so good stuff in the healthcare system, you really went down that rabbit hole because you, you produced a book out of it. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing that um, the autoimmune experience really inspired me to, to think about is also, you know, not just looking at individual patients diagnostic journeys, but also just the fact that autoimmune diseases affect 50 million Americans, it's estimated. Two-thirds or three-fourths of those are women. This kind of class of disease that is, you know, really impacts women disproportionately, and yet there's not a lot of public awareness, there's not a lot of awareness in the medical system, there's not a kind of an appreciation that these are diseases that um, often, like in my experience, you know, strike people when they're young and in the prime of their lives and have, you know, cause lifelong disability that affects their ability to work and to 
create a family. Part of my question was, you know, wh why are conditions that disproportionately affect women not taken so seriously and why isn't there as much awareness? So the book is in part about that question too, is, you know, looking at many different uh, ways that women's health is marginalized in the medical system, whether that's in terms of um, you know, the, the research dollars that we put towards something like autoimmune diseases, the sort of lack of awareness about uh, how our experience of the same condition can differ um, depending on if we're a man or a woman. In looking into those experiences on that broader scale, what were a couple of the themes that you uncovered that influences how women get researched and receive treatment and the whole gambit of healthcare. Yeah, so I, um, through my research in the book, I sort of laid out two big problems that I think are affecting women's medical care. First, there is a knowledge gap. Um, so thanks to many decades where we were really kind of more focused on um, understanding men's bodies and symptoms and conditions that disproportionately affect them and really neglecting, as I said, conditions that disproportionately affect women, but also neglecting to sort of investigate whether there are sex and gender differences in everything from the symptoms of the same disease to response to treatment. We're really left with this knowledge gap where women's health is just not as well understood as men's. So that I think is their first big problem. And then the second one I talk about a lot in the book is um, what I call the trust gap. So this is this tendency for healthcare providers to dismiss or minimize or normalize um, and especially to psychologize women's complaints of their symptoms. As we've already sort of talked about, you know, there's especially when you're reporting subjective symptoms that don't have objective test results to confirm them, women often find that their own self-reports are not, not enough to kind of prove they're sick. Uh, that problem is really rooted in this history of hysteria, which I go into in, in a lot of depth in the, in the book. You know, this was this kind of diagnostic category that's been with us for a really long time in medicine um, that has kind of morphed and shifted over the centuries, but has remained this catch-all diagnostic category where we kind of throw every, everything that's not yet understood. There's been a tendency to especially assume that women are especially prone to sort of psychogenic symptoms, um, hysterical symptoms. And so a lot of the book is sort of looking at how that concept is really alive and well in medicine and continues to really impact women when they enter the medical system and create all of these kind of stereotypes that really impact their ability to get good quality care. So we think of the medical system to be based on the scientific process and method and system, and that's supposed to be a self-correcting system. You know, if my experiment doesn't work, I tweak it and find out, you know, why things work or why things don't work. Yet that that doesn't seem to apply to the medical system. I mean, for centuries, you know, this label of hysteric, hysteria has followed women around all the time. Yet the medical system hasn't corrected that in spite of it being so overt. So if the problem's so obvious and it's been there for so long, how come they haven't stopped it? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a million dollar question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was in my research, it was um, hard for me to wrap my head around that very question that it, it did seem if you looked at the kind of medical history and the evolution of this concept, huge, huge problems with it, the kind of logical fallacies embedded in it seemed glaringly obvious uh, to me and to anybody who was sort of thinking critically. And yeah, you're right, you know, there, I think, has been this sort of way that the concept has been sort of grandfathered into each successive generation of medical providers, you know, they get taught this idea as, as a medical fact. Um, I don't know, I, th I think one problem is that there isn't, you know, medical students don't get much training on sort of the history of medicine. I think that that's one thing that would help is having a sort of more a better understanding of, of where we've been and how how medicine has changed and how you know every other generation of medical providers was sort of equally confident in in their medical theories and their diagnostic tests and had at all the um, you know lack of uh, humility <laughs> um, and and then was you know there was a step forward in medical knowledge and we realized that a lot of what they knew doesn't hold up and um, I think that that could really help sort of engender a little bit more humility in, in current practitioners to sort of, yeah, have that, that recognition that, you know, there's a lot that we still don't understand about the human body. And so we should assume that everything that is not yet explained will someday be explainable and not just sort of dump it into this category that's treated as if it's sort of inexplicable um, and attributed to the unconscious mind. Yeah, it, it really is uh, puzzling why they would default to psychogenic, psychosomatic explanation when they, when their routine tests don't come back, or even when their more uh, in-depth tests don't come back as showing anything positive. Right. Yeah, just the very nature of medicine that seems counterintuitive. The other thing that I posit would be helpful in uh, sort of disrupting that medical culture that you speak of that's been uh, grandfathered in generation after generation is that I think if they, a physician, as part of their training, and I don't think we could get this by any, any ethics board, but if part of their training is if they had to have lived with a complex chronic disease for a month that was very disabling, that was medically marginalized, that not a lot was known about it or invested in it or cared about it, and they experienced the gaslighting that goes along with that, that I think that experience, that education would change how they practice medicine because you can't teach that in a classroom. You can't teach that or learn that any other way except through that experience. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know how we can make medical schools do that, but I think <laughs> that would be hugely valuable. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, you know, I think part of the problem is, you know, when, one of the consequences of that sort of psychologizing of, of those kinds of, you know, challenging, difficult patients and um, is that, you know, they, they go to somebody else, you know, if, if you've been dismissed by a doctor and have been gaslit, you're not going to go back to that one. You're going to, if you have the resources, at least you're going to 
keep trying to find somebody who does take you seriously. And if you're not able to do that, you, or you're going to drop out of you know, the medical system entirely. And so it does create this kind of um, problem of invisibility of, of those, those patients. Yeah, really sort of self selecting for the, the, the doctors who are most already open to their experience and not providing that opportunity for somebody who doesn't yet, you know, have, have that understanding to, to get it through that sort of personal relationship with the patient. And that, you know, points to, I think, another sort of um, more general thing that I think would help change that culture, as you say, is, is just providing more feedback on doctors' diagnostic errors. Um, this is something that I really, you know, came to believe is, is a big part of the problem is that, you know, when you have a patient who is on a diagnostic journey, you know, whether they have something very mysterious and, and medically complex or something that's straightforward but just hasn't been diagnosed correctly yet, if they're going to multiple doctors and being told, you know, it's just stress or you're just a new mom or, you know, all the many different ways that, that patients get dismissed and then they finally do get diagnosed, those, patients, those doctors that were dismissive don't get the memo and so they don't realize that they were wrong and they, you know, in turn then kind of continue having the same stereotypes that they, they had and that affects how they treat the next patient. Yeah, that's that's a super important point. I'm, I'm part of a couple of patient safety groups, and I just joined them in the last couple of years. And the thing I noticed immediately was that they're focused on two types of medical errors, the ones that happen in the hospital and the ones that happen in the pharmacy. And there seems to be a blind spot to what happens in the GP's office. You know, and what you uh -huh. described is just a perfect example of how it's just not even on their radar at all, yet there's so many medical errors that happen in the GP's office and so much gaslighting um, and repeated. But as mm -hmm. far as patient safety is concerned, it, it's not on their radar yet. Right. I mean, I think that must be in part just a reflection of how much harder it is to study and quantify those kind of errors, you know, where it's, you know, if it's a medication error, that's, you know, pretty clear. Um, and there are at least, you know, obviously there's a lot of work to be done, but there are at least some systems in place to kind of track that. But um, yeah, there's just no kind of systematic way for a, a patient to let the provider or the health system know, you know, hey, this is what happened. Um, you know, there, I mean, there, you, you can kind of go above and beyond as a patient. You can go back to the doctor and say, you know, like, this is my the diagnosis I got. This is, you know, the way that you dismissed me and you were wrong. Um, but that is, you know, putting a lot on the patient when there should be really just kind of easy systems in place so that that feedback gets to the right people. Yeah, that, that sounds like an easy fix. So, yeah. Backing up to the knowledge gap, what do you think is the, the easy fix for the knowledge gap? <laughs> well, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot that sort of goes into the knowledge gap. So one of the sort of, you know, most concrete things is, is that for many decades, women were really being either excluded or underrepresented in a lot of clinical research. And there, there was this assumption that we could sort of mostly study men um, and then extrapolate results to women, and that was fine. There was a sense in the research community that 
it was somehow easier to study a homogenous study population of, of just men because you didn't have to account for you know women's messy menstrual cycles and hormonal cycles creating more complicated results. Since the early 90s, there's been a real recognition that, you know, that was inappropriate, that we, that there are often, um, or at least sometimes, you know, differences between men and women that we really, that can really affect clinical care that we need to be studying um, really at every stage of, of the research process from preclinical animal research all the way on up. And so there's certainly, you know, these days, it, getting women included in studies is, I think, you know, we've made a lot of progress on that front. Um, but there's still a lot of work to be done when it comes to actually analyzing results by gender to see if there are differences. There's been a kind of tendency for women to get included, but then they're all just mixed up and we still don't have a sort of awareness that we should actually be, <laughs> you know, looking for those potential differences. So that's one thing where I think there's, you know, there's a lot of, there's there's been, in some movement um, on the federal level in, in recent years, actually just in 2014, the NIH said, you know, you have to account for sex in, in animal studies and made a sort of call for animal researchers to be more attuned to that problem. But then there's also the, the, the I think, maybe more challenging issue of, of the fact that a lot of conditions that disproportionately affect women have just been kind of neglected by the research community entirely. And so, you know, that's something like fibromyalgia or vulvodynia or endometriosis, um, many, many chronic pain conditions that really just get seemingly small amount of research funding and have been stuck in this real catch-22 where there's been this long history of sort of assuming that they're psychosomatic conditions, um, I would argue in large part because it's mostly women who are affected. And that then justifies not spending research money on them because if you already assume that you know what's going on there's no need to actually do the kind of scientific research to actually explain them and so that you know i think is a yeah just a kind of tricky to catch 22 that hopefully as more patient advocates are, are sort of raising public awareness there'll be a little bit more kind of pressure to to take the, some of those conditions more seriously and and get them out of that sort of marginalized state within mainstream medicine. Yeah, so I can see how both of those things, by including more women in research and actually parsing out the differences in those female subjects within the research could be helpful, not only for the knowledge, but also for decreasing that trust gap. Mm -hmm. um, and then your second point of actually studying the, these medically marginalized diseases, which are often women's diseases or predominantly with women, by, by not gaslighting all of those diseases, that would definitely decrease the trust gap. Exactly. What else would help decrease that gap or increase the amount of trust we can have in our physicians? Yeah, I mean, I, as as you say, you know, you underscore. I think one of the really critical points for me is is that those two problems are so mutually reinforcing. So, as, as the more that we can close that knowledge gap, I think the more it will help close the trust gap. And in turn, you know, if we if we just trusted women's reports of their symptoms, we wouldn't <laughs> be in this position where so many um, conditions are so marginalized and um, 
um, yeah, so it, it, it is this really kind of mutually reinforcing problem. What else would affect the trust gap? I mean, I think I already said, you know, that that lack of feedback about diagnostic errors is, is a big thing that is sort of perpetuating it because th those doctors who don't get the memo that the patient that they said was just stressed is actually, you know, suffering from an autoimmune disease. That means that not only do they have this kind of false um, sense of confidence in their diagnostic skills, but they also have this impression that their offices are just filled with tons and tons of women who are reporting mysterious symptoms that have no cause and are just hysterical. And so that that in and of itself creates is, is part of what creates the stereotype that women are prone to psychogenic symptoms. Yeah, so I think that the, the feedback is, is really critical. Um, I also feel really hopeful that, you know, my book came out two years ago and, and it was sort of part of a wave of other books, including memoirs by women who had had experiences being gaslit in the medical system. Um, and I think that there is sort of a sense that there's more women are kind of sharing their stories of, of these kind of experiences. Um, and I think that that is valuable both to kind of for for patients to to see their experience reflected and and realize that they're not alone and also for our, our allies in the healthcare community to realize that this is a problem that is really widespread and I, I think a really big part of the problem is simply that a lot of people don't think it's a problem you know that they it's it's so invisible that it's not even on the radar radar for a lot of uh, healthcare providers so that I hope can help change that at least. Yeah, so if we assume that the healthcare system, based on its multiple centuries of not really self-correcting, okay, if we assume that that's going to hold for our, our lifespans, and I gave you a magic wand and you had, you know, benevolent dictatorship control over redesigning the healthcare system, what would it look like if you could start from scratch? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's just <laughs> so many, so many ways that the system is broken. Um, <laughs> yes. Hard to know where to begin. I mean, I think, you know, even in my own diagnostic experience, which was, you know, as we've discussed, like, by all accounts, really as good as it could possibly be in our current system, right? It was still a system where, you know, I went to a primary care doctor, was referred to a rheumatologist, couldn't get in for three months because that's how long it takes to see a rheumatologist. So it's just such a fragmented system in, in the best of times. And I think that that fragmentation is, is exacerbates a lot of the problems we're talking about. You know, it's you go to one doctor and then you have to go to another and you have to really be the, the quarterback who is getting all of these specialists who are very narrowly focused on their area of expertise to communicate with each other. And so especially for a, you know, more medically complex condition that is affecting multiple systems of the body that in and of itself, I think, um, creates unnecessary kind of confusion and delays in, in getting diagnosis. How it's, it's, yeah, it's an interesting question to think about if you were really starting from scratch. I mean, I, you know, I think this isn't totally starting from scratch, but one thing that I thought um, would be helpful for a lot of these patients who either have, you know, these really marginalized conditions or are just 
stuck in the kind of quagmire of, of being undiagnosed, having a, a sort of center that is just like purely focused on diagnosis and coordinating, you know, all the tests that need to be done, all the specialists that need to be seen is just, yeah, purely focused on sort of crossing off all of the, the, the things could be found helping kind of coordinate that so it's not that in the current system patients basically have to kind of do all that labor themselves you know they have to become really great medical researchers who figure out pot potential diagnoses themselves and then figure out you know what specialist is the right one to even see about that you know and then be you know the these super advocates for themselves to you know fight against doctors who are, have this tendency to dismiss them. Somehow, yeah, creating a system where that sort of work is centralized and, and taken off of the patient and put onto the system um, who really, you know, should have responsibility for diagnosing undiagnosed patients. Yeah, that is a, a really good insight that because there, that is the problem. If you get to the GP and they can't easily or um, quickly diagnose you, and then you go on this trail of different silos that you have to go down. But yeah, if they're one centralized place that does the diagnostic, that would be so much quicker, more efficient. Yeah, that's a really big thing. That, that question I asked you was actually posed to me a week ago when I was interviewing, uh, or was being interviewed by a researcher who was researching about patient engagement. She said, hey, you know, if you could design the healthcare system, what it would look like. Yeah. And the only thing I could think of at the time was a total inversion. So that in instead of patients being at the bottom of this hierarchy, patients are at the top. And then just working down from there, I think we could build a system that's more equitable and fair and flatter, although it could never be totally flat, but at least less mm -hmm. of the God complex happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Maya, I don't think we mentioned what your book was called. Uh, tell us what it is and where can folks find you and your book on social media? Yeah, um, it's called Doing Harm, The Truth About How Bad Medicine and Lazy Science Leave Women Dismissed, Misdiagnosed and Sick. You can find links to the book and also my other work at my website, which is mayadusenberry.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Maya Dusenberry. Great. Well, thanks for your time and all of the effort and the sort of advocacy work, the awareness work that you do to bring change to the healthcare system. I, I hope your book continues to have impact. Thank you so much. Same to you. Well, a big thanks to Maya for sharing her experience and telling us about her book and the research that went into it. And you can connect with Maya online at her website. And I encourage folks to take a look at buying her book. It is called Doing Harm, The Truth About How Bad Medicine and Lazy Science Leave Women Dismissed, Misdiagnosed, and Sick. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. And if you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. 
And if you need support for your own experience with medical error and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.